jump on the steam train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's real episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today we have Pace Morby, and although he technically lives here in Phoenix, Arizona, he's pretty much nationwide. Matter of fact, when I asked him how he's nationwide or what he's doing, he's actually getting his pilot's license so he can fly out to you or potentially your family members. Yes. Um, and you actually, what about- I told Steve was I would fly out to your guys' moms. <laughs> family members. Anyway, <laughs> today we're going to talk about how he went from uh, having bankruptcy declared on him and nearly losing everything mm-hmm. to $150 million in real estate under management. So if this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer, and every month we help hundreds of people buy more houses at deeper margins. If you want to join us on our training calls, DM me the word sales on Instagram. I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. The information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, I assure you, you will become one. And this show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get access to over 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors to get 10% off. And if you get value today, please tag your friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And don't forget, we do have part in the disruption on Thursdays, which is our live debate show. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Pace to answer. You ready? I'm ready, bro. Fourth Uh, time on here, by the way, and I have to tell you that this is my favorite podcast I ever come on. I get so excited. This is the only podcast I get butterflies for. Well, I appreciate that. Bro, you're the best. So first time I came on here, I gave my cell phone number out. Okay? So that's not a tip for you guys to go look at that episode. (laughs) But I put my phone number out there. Not only did I get business partners from that, I got business relationships. I just bought a $3 million uh, multifamily deal, sub two and seller finance, because somebody got my phone number from your podcast. Yeah. You have made me millions of dollars, not thousands, not hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars since my first episode. Well, I appreciate that. And you've made a lot of people millions of dollars too. And yes. people need to understand this. Like my, here's my strategy. Anybody that comes on your show, I'm like, oh, that's obviously somebody that's been vetted. Somebody that Steve knows is legit. I'm going to go become friends with that one person. And I'm going to see how I can make money with that person. Really good strategy. Simple strategy. Simple strategy. And I mean, I don't really need to get in, you know, too deep with this as far as the social media component, right? Yeah. Uh, Obviously, you're doing really well on social media. But, you know, you're saying just you coming in on and just giving your phone number has made you millions of dollars. I mean, what would you say to someone right now that is like, should I make content? Uh, get over yourself. One, step one, get over yourself. Like there you have, everybody has something inside of them to benefit somebody else. And I think the biggest reason why they feel like they don't is they think that everybody is looking for a, a full book and that you're just one step ahead of them. So I'm like, guys, if you're just one chapter ahead of somebody else, like you've done one deal or you've cold called a hundred hours, you've never got a deal, then tell people that. Just show people the genuine authenticity. You're one step ahead of them, and that's all they need to know is that one next step. So forget about the imposter syndrome. Forget about all that kind of stuff and post. I I look at it this way. If I'm driving from Arizona to California and I'm hungry, how do I know there's a place to eat in the middle of the desert? Well, there's a sign sticking up maybe two, three miles down the road. I'm like, oh, great. Meanwhile, if none of these hamburger joints or these sandwich shops had any signs, I would just drive right yep. by, by them, not knowing that they actually had, had a If they product. didn't let us know, they were in business. Right. So throw up the damn golden arches, guys. And the golden arches in this business is social media. It is your business card nowadays. I saw a clip that you had posted. Uh, I'm assuming someone on your team posted, right? But that was a great clip. It was you and Brandon Turner. It was some uh, video mm. event. 
Yeah. Right. Talking about dating versus marriage. Right. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, actually. So first episode I did with you was a little over three years ago. I give my cell phone out and I said, if you guys need help closing deals, you guys need help with whatever creative finance deals, going on appointments, just let me know. I'd be happy to help you. So Cody Barton, my business partner, shoots me a text. Didn't know me at the time. He just saw me on the show and he was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I need. Okay. So Cody and I go and sit down in a McDonald's, ironically that I'm, th- I'm bringing up the golden <laughs> arches. We go and sit down in a McDonald's, literally, he pulls open a laptop and he goes, Pace, I've got warm leads. And I go, prove it. Okay. So he gives me these leads. I'm sitting there again, guys, in a, in a McDonald's. I fly the next day to a Mark Evans event. And as I'm stepping out, taking breaks from the Mark Evans event, I'm making calls to his leads. That weekend, in two days, Cody and I made $40,000 together because he's like, here's the leads. I closed the deals, right? And immediately we were like, whoa, this is a great vibe. Mm -hmm. We should partner. Yeah. But we didn't do that. We dated for six months because you want to wait for people and their true nature to come out after about six months because when you first meet people, their guard is way up and you don't know who the real person is until... They get that late, that laziness. Mm-hmm. So it's why you also shouldn't propose to anybody until you're at least dating six months. So for me, Cody and I dated. We just JV'd on everything that we did. And then after about six months, we looked at each other and said, man, we, this is great. Yeah. This JV has made us both a lot of money. We like working together. We actually look forward to looking or working with each other. And we're constantly in competition to see who can outwork the other person. And here we are three years later, it's the same exact thing, constantly trying to outwork each other. He always loses, but he still tries. Yeah. I love Cody. And I got my partner from you, actually, from the show. Again, Steve Trang has made me millions of dollars. So dating, always, I would say six months of JVs before you go into a partnership. Uh, We did an event um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Right. Um, It was uh, the grand opening for Keegley. So it was me, you, uh, Jamil, and Brent Daniels. And um, there was a couple of different things here. Uh, first, there, were, there was a live Q&A, and they were asking questions. And, like, you were really, really helpful for, with your questions. I was a little bit less helpful with my questions. And what I really enjoyed in that interaction was when I would answer someone's questions, you were like, your jaw just dropped. Like, he didn't just <laughs> say It's like one, one word <laughs> answers. Like, somebody goes, I need X, Y, and Z. And Steve was like, no. Well, I was like, go do it, right? right? And I think where I want where I want to go with this is that I'm not here to inspire you, right? I'm here to give you clear, direct directions, right? right? Here's what I'm struggling with. Here's how you go fix it. You go fix it, right? And there was a person that asked a question about like, I feel like I've lost my inspiration. I've lost my passion. I was like, and when he said that, I'm really glad that you went first. Cause like in my head, it's like, well, that sucks for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a very, it was a stressful question. His question was for everybody out there in uh, TV land. He says, I've been a fix and flipper for eight years. I've made good money, but I've lost all my motivation. I don't want to be doing this anymore. What would you guys do if I were in your shoes? Yeah. So for me, I was gonna be like, you need to go find your passion, but mm-hmm. you had a much more inspirational answer. Do you so, remember what it was? Uh, I remember what it was. I will have you go ahead and. So what I told him is I said, here's the thing is that you have nobody else to help but yourself. You're basically going out there and you're an island in this business. You go out and you find the deal. The person that you find the deal with, you're not going to lunch with them. You're not hanging out. You're not becoming friends. Um, Then you go and you fix and flip the project. You don't care about your crews. You're not becoming friends with them. 
And then you're doing the same thing. You're selling this house through a real estate agent. Again, not becoming friends with anybody. Entirely transactional. Entirely transactional. And I can tell you, I wake up in the morning so excited, especially four or five years ago here in Phoenix, Arizona, I would co- I was collaborating with Steve a lot. All of us were collaborating. And mm-hmm. I looked forward to hanging out with my competition yep. as much as I possibly could because we were collaborating and having a lot of fun. So I said, do that. But here's something more important is you need to find other people to help and you need to see how that actually changes their life and they come back to you and go, dude, I took something you told me, mm-hmm. I went and made $20,000 with it, you changed my family's trajectory. That is what I call emotional income and it's way more addictive than a $10,000 check. Right, it's a lot more fulfilling and it's a lot more rewarding. So uh, we're talking about you know portfolio, um, but I wanna take a step back here, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I still remember back when, you know, you and I used to go run at Discovery Park, right? right. And we had Eric Sage on the show. Mm-hmm. And you're like, this creative thing, this is interesting. Might yeah. have some legs. Yeah. Right? So I want to talk about your journey into the creative world. Okay. So step one. Step one, I was born in a creative finance household. A lot of people don't actually know this. My parents moved 26 times before I turned, I turned 19. And all of the houses my dad bought for our family was a seller finance, a subject to, or a lease option purchase. The problem in the challenge with my dad is my dad never looked at creative finance as anything other than a way to buy a house for his family. And, uh, and why was my dad buying houses for his family with creative finance, but not going out and doing real estate investing? Well, my dad, as an accountant, was making $60,000, $70,000 a year with 12 children, obviously not enough money. So he goes and starts a painting company making money under the table for an extra two, $300,000 a year. So that income that's non-reportable, or he's not reporting it, but it's non-bankable income, which means no bank's gonna give him a loan based on that income. My dad's like, I gotta figure out how to buy houses big enough for my family. Mm-hmm. So he would go find 5,000, 7,000, 11,000 square foot houses for my 12 kids and my parents to live in. And he would find seller finance subject to and, and lease option opportunities. So I've always known what creative finance was, but I always thought it was a way to just buy houses for yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, when the Eric Sage episode came, I sat down with Eric and I would go, look, I've done a handful of creative finance strategies, but I want to understand how do you create a massive like business? And I became friends with Eric. We spent a whole year together and I spent a lot of time with Eileen Brown, who's done creative finance strategies for 48 years. I paid for a couple of creative finance mentorships that were absolute trash. You find out that the mentors hadn't done deals in 15 years or so. And I am like, all right, like I got to figure this out. So Eileen Brown, Eric Sage, my dad were, were the three main people that helped me out. Yeah. So I guess for you then with your dad already having done it, there was not as much hesitation. No, So there was not like, you know, is this going to work for, building your portfolio, right? Cause like at that time, you know, you were, uh, you were home investors, right? Mm-hmm. You were my contractor. I was a realtor. I was a broker. Right. Right. And then we were, you were wholesaling and then I got more active in the wholesaling and then you pivoted to creative. Right. Was there any doubt whatsoever? Like is, is creative the way to go? Or is like, all right, this is it. I'm all in. No, it was actually really similar. It was kind of a, I was a four, it was forced on me. So before I really pivoted full time to creative, I'm now to a point, bro, that I'm like, somewhat aggressive with people that go, Hey, Pace, I've got a deal. I go, I don't buy cash deals. I don't even want a cash deal. I don't, mm-hmm. even, I don't even want them sent to me unless they're here in Arizona. I'll buy yeah. cash deals in Arizona, all other 49 States. I won't touch a cash deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people DM me, they text me, they 
whatever. And I'm like, if it's not creative, I don't want to look at it. Yeah. In fact, I've got a text message with somebody in Houston who's like, I just sent you a big portfolio deal. And I go, not looking at it because I'm sure it's not creative. He goes, no, 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 it's creative. I go, perfect. Then we can have a conversation. Right. But what happened to me is in 2000, um, I don't know, four years ago, I had a gentleman, that's to put it very politely, owed me a million or so dollars. He files bankruptcy on me and 16 million other dollars worth of debt he owed. Mm -hmm. He was running a Ponzi scheme here in Phoenix, Arizona. And I've always been a creative person. So the way I got myself in this really shitty situation is I go, how do I accelerate my construction business? Well, the way I'll do it is I'll fund home renovators or fix and flippers renovations up front. Mm -hmm. And then they can pay me when their buyer comes and pays them. Right. So dude, my business lit up on like fire, like went crazy. And I was making great money working for open door offer pad Zillow. I was the big contractor here in town, but then one guy got his hooks in me and decided, um, I'm going to file bankruptcy on you and everybody else I owe money to. And I'm sitting there going, wow, I invested all my time and energy into this guy for basically two or three years as I was building his business and doing all this stuff. And all he had to do is wipe me out with one filing of bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. So that commitment, which was about six months before I came on the show the first time, that commitment forced me, unfortunately, or that, I'm sorry, that situation that I went through forced me to sell my house. I was in the middle, middle, middle of building and 40 rentals at the time. I had to sell everything just to keep my construction business afloat. Yeah. So I had to sell everything. And I rebuilt everything from scratch. And when I went to go buy another home for myself, guess what, bro? I had no cash. I had no credentials because I was a, a contractor. And I, you know, we try and ride as much as you can cut off. Nearly and so I was income. forced into a situation where I'm like, how do I build a massive portfolio without cash, credit, or credentials? Mm -hmm. And I just looked at what my dad had done. I looked at what other people had done. I said, I'm committing to this. So I had hesitation, but I also had no choice. Yeah. The first deal I'm aware of yeah. is one that you bought with Jamil. No, that was the first deal I, I bought. I bought That's something that I'm aware of, right? Yeah, so. that I bought for multiple sub two and seller finance deals before that. But that was the first deal I bought subject to, and I sold on a wrap. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so then walk me through your very first creative deal. Bro, my first creative deal, I, it was horrible. I thought, I thought what I was doing... Um, so I go and pay for a mentorship, and... I'm told, oh yeah, you can just go and get a, a house on the MLS, and what you can do is you can buy it with a hard money loan, and then you can wrap that hard money loan to an end buyer. I mean, that's creative. It's creative, <laughs> but it doesn't work because the end buyer is not expecting to take over an interest-only loan. Yeah. And so that was well, a, not just an interest-only loan, but a hard money loan. A hard money loan. High rate. With... It was eleven percent, and I sold it to the buyer at like eleven and a half percent. And I was like, I'm really not making money on this. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And that forced me down a path of like figuring out and, and discovering all the things that I needed to, to discover, yeah. like taking action and making mistakes. Right. So did you actually go through with that plan? Yeah, I went through that. Yeah, I okay. went through it and I, I ended up having to restructure the underlying debt. Um, I had to go and get a private money lender named Alex here locally, a guy that's a tile dealer. Mm -hmm. He came in and gave me a 7% amortized loan. And so I still, to this day, still have that note. So I... I have Alex in first position, and I have my buyer, my wrap buyer, at 11.5%, mm -hmm. and I make, I don't know, $500 a month or so on that first yeah. deal. And for you guys that are watching right now, the reason why I'm asking Pace these questions, I mean, this was not intentional. Mm -hmm. Like, Pace and I have had this schedule for months now. Right. 
Um, but at this exact moment, I don't think there could be a better time for you to be on there's, the show. There's no, there's, I tell everybody right now, if you're, all you're doing right now is you're trying to learn wholesale, I'm going to start a creative finance. I'm not, I'm going to create a wholesale mentorship called good luck mentorship. <laughs> if you're just trying to learn wholesale right now, good luck, yeah. good luck. You're, you're going to get left behind. I've been screaming this from the, the mountaintops for years. And, um, I've even created strategies along the way that were didn't exist in the last couple of years. Knowing that this was going to come, yeah. Knowing that what we're going through right now, inflation hit nine point one percent this morning. Mm-hmm. The report just came out nine point one percent. Yeah. The Fed is going to raise the rate where it's at right now, which is roughly six to seven percent. If I go out and get a mortgage right now, it's going to be eight percent by the end of next month. Listings have tripled. So does it mean the market's going to crash? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But all I know is that it, it, these buyers who are now not qualified to buy these houses because they can't afford this stuff and sellers who are refusing to sell because they're sitting here saying, well, I acquired my house in the last three or four years at 3% interest. If I sell my house on the market, how am I going to go replace this thing and get a 7% or an 8% mortgage? So you're still going to have a major demand issue. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on is I'm getting, uh, I'm getting for the first time ever, bro, First time ever, I had a seller reach out to me and say, how do I sell my house subject to? Yeah. And I brought them in on a Zoom with 700 of my students. And I I talked to a seller and they go, dude, I need to get rid of this property. It's happening right now. We're getting multifamily sellers. We're getting single family sellers, mobile home park sellers, land sellers saying, take my property on terms. Take it. Mm -hmm. Because people are fearful and they and interest rates are going to eat people up for the next 36 months. When I remember you and I talking about this, um, I want to say two years ago, mm-hmm. I was talking about like this inflation problem is going to be coming. Right. And it sucks if you're a W-2, right? Yeah. Because you can't improve, you can't compete against the rate of inflation that's coming. Right. Uh, but going back to this, right? Like I'm going to be asking some very specific questions because I think the people that are listening, again, timeliness right. is that. I can't think of a better time to have you on the show talking about creative financing and so on. So that's the reason why I'm asking all these questions. So yeah. your first one, right, was disaster. You had to do a yeah. refi out with someone else. I learned, from, I learned from somebody who didn't know what they were doing. Right. Yeah. So, and, and also somebody that wasn't actually active in the business. I, I learned from uh, the wrong person. So I think with that, right, let's discuss some questions that you wish you would have asked mm-hmm. the first guy or first couple guys you invested with. Right. I think when you look at creative finance, let's break down what creative finance is real quick for sure. a lot of people. Cause some people might be brand new. Maybe they're listening to, to this for the first time. Creative finance is a way to buy anything, anything without cash credentials or credit and credentials. I mean, W2 tax returns, bank statements. Um, and you guys can see all this stuff on my YouTube. I break down deals, call sellers all the time, but it's anything. So let's, let's talk about it in a, in very simple terms. When I was young, going back to my parents, I remember my mom, she's a seamstress. So she would sew, she'd make dresses, she'd make stuffed animals for people. And my parents had a lot of kids. And so there were moments in my parents' life where my mom didn't have enough money to go buy materials to then create a product and then sell. So what my mom would do is my mom would go and ask somebody in her church, hey, do you have a credit card that I can use to go buy materials? Because I went to Michael's and they told me I, I don't have enough credit to get a Michael's card that I can buy like materials to go turn, like make teddy bears and dresses and stuff like that. So my mom goes and finds somebody and says, yeah, no problem. 
here's what I want. This is interesting. I've known this since I was a kid. They said, whatever you make on the back end, I just want 5% of your net and I'll let you use my credit. So my mom was using arbitrage to make dresses. So like she would sew bears and all sorts of tchotchkes, you know, little odds and ends. And she would sell them at local schools and she would sell them at hospitals as like gifts in the gift shop. She would do that all by leveraging somebody else's credit. Right. So my mom was arbitraging or utilizing somebody else's stuff to go make something with her hands and then mm -hmm. go sell it. So on top of other people's money is other people's credit. Everybody's credit. Yeah. Right. And so that's creative finance. Yep. Another piece of creative finance. Um, I, you want to know my actual first deal? My first deal was not even a real estate deal. Mm -hmm. My first deal was my F-150. And I've yep. told this story a lot. I tell this story all the time when I talk to sellers that they have a hard time. In fact, I'm closing today on two properties, 0% seller finance that's going to cash flow like crazy and the mortgages are going to be paid down. And everybody else is all worried about these 7% interest rates. And I'm mm -hmm. gobbling up 0%, 2%, 3% deals and building my portfolio. I'm paying a wholesaler right now today, not today, but next week, $200,000 assignment fee on a multifamily seller finance deal that he brought to me. I had to restructure it, but... He's making 200 grand assigning a multifamily creative finance deal to me. Guys, creative finance will dominate. And what Steve and I are going to talk about here in a minute is special. So when um, I've always known creative finance, but I didn't understand it as how to be an investor. So I'd watch my mom, I'd watch my dad, all that kind of stuff. I used to be a contractor, as we talked about, and I had this F-150 Ford hit 320,000 miles. Okay. Dude, that thing started having overheating issues, all sorts of problems. And I'm like, I don't want to deal with this thing. I would get calls from my guys. They'd say, hey, the truck is overheated again. I'm like, gosh, damn it. Call AAA, tow the thing, whatever. So I go, where do sellers go when they want to verify um, what their property is worth? Zillow. What's the Zillow of cars? Kelly Blue Book. Kelly Blue Book. So I do what every damn seller does. I go to Kelly Blue Book. I go to the Zillow of cars. And I see that my truck in its as-is condition with the miles it has is worth 5,000 bucks. I'm like, $5,000 is a four-door Ford F-150. This thing, if I just fix it up, I can make way more money just keeping it in the rotation with my crews, right? Well, I never fixed it. It was too much of a problem. Sound like a home seller. Mm -hmm. Like, I want this much money. I'm not willing to sell it for this. I want to demand this thing, but it needs to be fixed up. I literally was a dis like a distressed seller. Mm -hmm. So I... Go to Craigslist in a belligerent fashion, and I go throw my F-150 on Craigslist for $10,000. Did I sell my F-150 for $10,000? Uh, probably not. No, I did not. I didn't even get a call, a text, a smoke signal, nothing. Nobody reached out to me. And so my wife comes in, you know, and she goes, well, you know, you understand like how your mom did things and your dad did blah, blah, blah. You're, you, you know, creative finance. Like what, look what I was doing with construction. Mm -hmm. Now with construction, that got me in trouble. I would front people's, you know, finances and they ended up robbing me. Right. In real estate, it's great. That really can't happen, which is nice. But she goes, why don't you just take payments on the truck? It was my wife's idea, right? This is like eight years ago, maybe mm -hmm. not, maybe nine years ago. I go, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. So what I do is I go back to Craigslist. I literally change one thing. And I said, F-150 will take payments. So what happens? Did I sell that truck for 10,000 bucks? Of course. I sold it for $12,500. And the buyer who bought it from me, Jose, 
gave me a thousand dollars down and he made a $350 payment to me until that thing was paid off. So I paid it. I sold it for two and a half times more than what Kelly blue book told me it was worth mm -hmm. because I was willing to give somebody seller finance. Yeah. And so that was the first seller finance deal I ever did. And I always understood that the value of something, remember this, everybody out, out there right now, the value of anything is not the purchase price. The value is always what you can do with it. So if I can turn that truck, like Jose, this is what Jose did. Somebody's like, I, I would ask him, did Jose overpay for that truck? The answer is hell no, Jose did not overpay for that truck because he took that truck, he got into it with really favorable terms and mm -hmm. he went out and made six or $7,000 a month using it for right. his own painting company. And he's a Hispanic dude. So, you know, they fixed that truck up real good. Yeah. You know? And the other thing you guys may not know about this, about Pace, is that he's a truck kind of kind of sore, maybe a little bit of a snob. Yeah, a little um, bit. Because uh, I thought I mistaken his truck. I saw an F-150 Raptor. Yeah, yeah. It's like, is that your truck? And he took complete offense. I was like, this, mine's a platinum. Yeah, he gave me a 20-minute lecture on trucks. I was like, step into my truck. Let me explain to you. <laughs> yeah, we actually sat in his truck outside the gym <laughs> and, talk, and, and talked about the, all this stuff. So... Your question was, what would you, what do you wish you knew before you got into creative finance and what people need to understand? What did you wish you had asked the people that you paid for, for mentorship? Um, what questions you would ask them? I, I wish I understood why people sell on mm -hmm. creative finance and what to do if you are a buyer on creative finance. But I mean, like before signing up with a mentor. Oh, I would want to know that they're actively doing deals. Yeah. I would want to know they're actively buying real estate. I would want to see settlement statements. I would want to see how they're funding these deals. I would want to see, basically, that's it. That's mm. all I would have needed to see. I don't even care if you're buying a deal a day, but are you buying one a month? Are you buying one a quarter? Are you buying at least one a year? If you bought one in the last 12 months. If you bought a property in the last 12 months, then chances are you got a little bit of momentum that I could learn a couple of things. Yeah. So, all right. Your first deal, right? You yeah. had to refi out of it. Uh, what were some other things you learned along the way uh, when you started acquiring properties through creative? Uh, I, was, I learned um, a couple of things that people need to understand. There's, there's two trains of thought. There's subject to and seller finance, and people don't quite understand the two differences between them. Even me, I didn't quite understand. It seems silly, but I didn't understand the difference between subject to and seller finance. I mean, I think we've all been there, right? I don't we've think there's anything to be ashamed there. of. In fact, I've had to make six or seven videos on it on my YouTube channel because it commonly comes up all the time. I mean, I think, team, if you guys are paying attention, hell, let's us make a video about that. All right, yeah, continue. You, you should. So the difference, be, I, if I understood the difference between subject to and seller finance, I would also then know the difference between the two sellers of subject to and seller finance because mm -hmm. they're not the same type of demographic, no. right? In um, subject to, it means I'm taking over somebody else's debt. So think about it as like, I want to buy your car. I can just take over your car payments. That's called subject to. Mm -hmm. But what if your car is paid off and you don't have payments? Well, I just say, let me make payments to you and you just be my bank. That's seller finance. Mm -hmm. So seller finance means the property is paid off free and clear. Subject to means there's a debt that I need to make payments to and take that over. It's pretty simple. I didn't know that. Okay. So I would rack my brains like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I would think and confuse the buyers in seller finance and subject to as the same demographic that you talk to them, polar opposite. Mm -hmm. A subject to seller typically is going through pain. A seller finance seller only wants gain. Yep. Okay, so you're gonna get a lot of sellers. If you're a wholesaler, you're a real estate agent, 
um, bought a lot of deals from wholesalers, bought a lot of deals from agents where I have to come in and restructure it where there's, they say, my seller's out of control. They want too much money for this property. I'm like, it kind of reminds me of my F-150. Mm-hmm. I looked at the price of what Zillow tells me or Kelly Blue Book, and I'm like, F that. I think it's worth more than that. I'm a belligerent seller just like anybody else. So I go, well, the value of something is not the purchase price. The value of something is what I can do with it and how cheaply I can get into it, right? Mm-hmm. And so seller finance, typically all the seller wants um, is to see that they sold the property for a mental, they committed in their minds when they bought the property and when they're selling it, the seller in a seller finance situation is financially savvy, Mm -hmm. okay? Most seller finance sellers actually know what a note is, a promissory note. They know what seller finance is. A lot of sellers know what subject two is too, Mm -hmm. okay? These sellers want to win. They want a high purchase price, okay? That's a seller finance. I wish I knew that or way earlier. It took me about a year, maybe two years to truly understand the difference between these two sellers. Yep. So when you have a seller that says, I want $300,000 for a $300,000 house, I go, no problem. If I was able to come up to $300,000, would you give me terms? Seller says, what's terms? I then tell them my F-150 story. They go, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I go, so you can see how I can pay you 300 grand as long as it makes sense for me mm-hmm. on subject two, it's always pain. It's always, I, I owe too much money. And some people right now will go, well, everybody has equity. Go, not the people that did a refinance last year. Yeah. If you, if it's the last six months, you don't have equity, but or more than six months, in some, depending on the market, some markets think about this too. And that this is another thing I wish I truly understood when I was getting into real estate is what does it cost my buyer to sell their fix and flip. Most people have no clue. They're out there wholesaling deals to, to their fix and flip buyers mm-hmm. and their fix and flip buyer has to renovate the property, sell it on the MLS and pay roughly eight to 10% in, right. in selling costs. A lot of sellers don't have eight to 10% of equity a year after they bought their house. Mm-hmm. So they go sell their property. It's like, I know I'm a little bit over the place, but let me explain this. If I have a house that is ARV or my Zillow price says, if I go to Zillow right now and Zillow says it's worth 300 and I owe 270, how much equity do I have? Put a, put a, put a, put a comment in the side chat. How much equity does that seller have? $300,000 is what their house is worth. They owe 270,000. People are like, this is obviously a trick. It is a trick because you think that that $30,000 is equity. That is not equity. That is called spread. That is not equity. Write this down. Equity is what you have in your pocket after you sell your house and everything is paid off. That's equity. So somebody who who owes $270, the house is worth $300, will actually walk out of that transaction with $0. So if you bought a property and actually went up 10% in a year, mm-hmm. you still don't have equity. Yeah, you're breaking even. You're breaking even. Yep. And so you get a lot of sellers like, wow, really? This is it? So I'm buying, we're gobbling up subject two deals from people that are in foreclosure. A lot of foreclosures are happening right now. Um, a lot of um, people that are, they refinanced last year and they don't have any equity. A lot right. of those deals are pop- popping up right now. Yeah. I shouldn't see popping up. They're flooding the market. They're everywhere. By the way, um, I think your your crowd, your community is alive and well. Oh, great. Yo, yeah. my, my community is the greatest. Yeah, 445 people here, uh, which is a new record. 
So new record. Shout out sub two. I can tell you the most magnificent thing that I've done in my life mm -hmm. is that the burn and all the things that I had to go through with finding the wrong mentors and spending the money in the wrong place and not getting what I needed. What I said to myself is that if I ever created a mentorship, it would never be a mentorship. Mm -hmm. It would always be a community that is lifelong. And so my students, they join, bro, like I memorize their names. I know their spouse's names. I know the last deal they did. And we're not talking a thousand people. We're at 5,000 sub two students right now in the nation. Mm -hmm. We are, I'm going to challenge other real estate educators. We, in my opinion, I believe I'm the only real estate community in real estate. My people are so connected. They're doing local meetups. They have accountability groups. I fly all over with Jamil, um, see my students, memorize their names, get to know them. There's no end to the sub two community. Yeah. I mean, truthfully, I'd be afraid to attack it because, or attack you. Cause oh, I think, I, I think they would murder me. I yeah, think they'd yeah. be, uh, I have at least one person in my sub two community that would probably kill for me. Yeah. I, I would, I would venture to guess the over under is probably like five or 10. Right. But my goal was sub. here's what my goal was with the sub two community always was how do I normalize the conversation around creative finance? Mm -hmm. Because I, I, you know, there's things that are normal in real estate, like a real estate agent, a broker, a title and escrow agent, right? All these types of things are pretty normal. But my goal three, four years ago was how do I normalize the conversation around subject to seller finance, novation agreements? Um, I don't talk a lot about novation agreements, but my, our group does more than anybody else. Like we do so many novation agreements. And then um, we've got it. I get emails from attorneys. Like I just got an, an email from an attorney in San Antonio last week that says, Pace, I've been doing subject to and seller finance transactions here in Texas for over 30 years. I've met a lot of dummies, but every time a subject to a sub two student comes through my doors and opens an escrow, we know it's going to be the easiest file we do that whole week. And so we're on our way to normalizing what creative finance really should be in the, the real estate space, but we're doing it together. I can't do it on my own and we're doing it together as a community. Yeah. So I think the other thing I want to look at is uh, before we talk about, you know, pitching it and so on. Yeah. Uh, let's say someone's brand new yeah. to sub two or creative, right? Seller finance or whatever. Someone's new to it. What are some things they should do or what are some things they should absolutely not do? Okay. So I, I would love to get into that. Do you mind if I break down a deal that I just did like a couple days ago? Go for it. So I, I set aside 30 hours for this. Perfect. This. Perfect. This, that's just, that's the intro. <laughs> I'm actually thinking, so I did a 16-hour live two years ago. I did a 25-hour live, and then I did a 26-hour live. No food, no drink, no, no pause, no break, and just did all that stuff. I'm planning on doing a 30-hour um, live where I talk about nothing but creative finance, but I go A to Z on creative finance, where I'm like, start here, do this. I'm going to end up doing it on the on the YouTube channel at some point in the next couple of weeks. Instead of sub two or seller finance for S, can we just talk about Steve for an hour? Of course. Perfect. I'd bro, I got a lot of stories about you. <laughs> So um, I, I've got a deal right now that I don't look at, when people send you me a cash deal, what's the number one thing you look at at a cash deal is my purchase price. In creative finance, the purchase price is the last thing I look at. The first thing I always look at on a creative finance deal is what I call the entry fee. So I'm going to give your audience, and a lot of my students already know this, they'll fill up the chat with what the entry fee is, watch. So I always look at a deal and when somebody goes, hey, Pace, I've got a sub two deal for you. I go, great. What's the entry fee? I don't even care about the address. I don't care about the bed bath count. I don't care about the garages. 
I don't care about the condition of the property until you tell me what my entry fee is first. What is an entry fee? Okay, this is something that I created because I would watch all these other guys on YouTube and other mentorships I paid for, and nobody ever talked about this. There's seven parts to an entry fee. Number one is what does the seller receive? What's the cash to the seller? Sometimes that's zero. Sometimes that's a hundred grand, depending on the deal. What does the seller receive in their pocket? That's number one. Number two, are there any arrears, liens, encumbrances that I have to pay? Because I've taken over IRS liens. I've taken over mechanics liens. I've taken over child support liens. I've taken all over a bunch of those things. Did Steve te uh, send you guys a message and say, get a fan in here, paces on fire? Is that what's going on here? Yes. I love it. So um, number two is, are there any arrears, you know, back payments, things like that? Number three, what's my assignment fee to the person that brought the deal to me? Mm -hmm. Or if I bought it in-house, which we buy a lot of sub two and seller finance deals in-house, what's my commission I'm paying to my guys, my acquisition guys? That's number three. Number four is, now I know what the seller's getting, what arrears I have, the person who got the deal under contract is getting paid. I now have to know what is the closing cost. Mm -hmm. Okay. Number five, renovation. Number six, now that I own a subject to or seller finance house, guess what I'm responsible for? Payments. Payments. So number six is before my exit strategy comes to fruition, let's say it's an Airbnb, might be two months of renovating, a month of furnishing. That means I got three payments, three months of utilities, three months of taxes, three months of landscaping, three months of all that kind of stuff. That's number six. And then number seven is what is it going to take to market that property to get a tenant or an Airbnb launched, et cetera. So that number, add all those numbers up, that is my entry fee. Mm -hmm. Now, where does that entry fee come from? How do I buy a subject to or a seller finance deal if I don't have any money? Private money. Either private money or partnering with people. A lot of my students partner with each other. They go find the deal and somebody else goes, I'm brand new, but I got 25,000 in cash. Let's go buy this deal together, turn it into an Airbnb and let's go 50-50 on the ownership of it. I also wish somebody would explain the fact that you can creative, you can wholesale the piss out of creative finance deals. You can wholesale novations, lease options, subject to deals, seller finance deals, Morby method deals. All of the deals can be wholesaled. So even if you're brand new, you need to understand what are my entry fee costs because I need to go to a buyer like Pace mm -hmm. or somebody else and say, it's going to cost you $32,700 to pay the seller, get my assignment fee and get the arrears paid, my assignment fee, closing costs, a little bit of renovation and get this thing rented out. Do you have a calculator for this? Cause like no. one thing that we have is, you know, um, one thing I see is funny on, you know, wholesale's email blast is like, here's what ARV is. Oh yeah. yeah. Here's what the renovation budget is going to be. Yeah. And you can't trust either number. You can't. Now that's the other thing about creative finance. Again, I don't care what the ARV is. Right. I get that. But like, if someone says, Hey Pace, I got this deal. Entry fee is $30,000. Oh yeah. I have to check it every time. Yeah. I have to check it every time. Especially people that watch my students know. So like a student sends a deal to me. Mm -hmm. I bought it. I have a deal right now that I'm doing where my student says, hey, the entry fee is $31,000. And I went through and I looked at it and I go, ah, it looks like it's more like $34,000. But like they're really, really freaking close. Yeah. Most wholesalers are like, ARV is $400, but it's really $320, mm -hmm. right? It, it, yeah. So that happens, but they're typically non-students that watch my YouTube channel that don't quite understand it. So I wish I knew when I first jumped into creative finance that the purchase price is ancillary. It's yeah, not it's really that important. It's irrelevant. Yeah. Until... Okay, I'm not going out there and paying 
three hundred thousand for a two hundred thousand dollar house. I've never overpaid for a property, maybe more than three to five percent. I've never just gone crazy on stuff. Where I just stopped looking at it is because I'm like, well, I need to know what cash I need to bring to the table, right? Mm-hmm. Before I know anything else. Because if you tell me my, the seller wants $500,000 down on a $700,000 house, I already know that's not a good deal. <laughs> right? Yeah. So immediately, that's my first filter. Mm-hmm. Knowing what is my cash outlay. What is it gonna, going to cost me to enter into that deal? Whether it's a sub two deal, seller finance deal, novation agreement, lease option, does not matter what the deal is. What is my actual cash that's going to get me to a point where I'm cash flowing? That's called the entry fee. And if I, if I knew that, I probably would have an extra 100 properties in my portfolio if I knew that faster. But I would get a deal, and a seller would be in, in foreclosure, and I'd go, I don't know, how, where does that money come from? How do, how do I know all the things it's going to cost? I wish I knew that earlier. So the entry fee was super um, important when I, when I put that together. Um, another thing I didn't quite understand is exit strategy. Yeah. And I would just assume, okay... Well, I would I wholesaled a lot of my first sub two and seller finance deals because I didn't have the money and I didn't have the skill set of raising capital. Right? So and I didn't have the ability to have a brand that people want to partner with me. I got people emailing me every day saying, I got three hundred grand. What what can we do with it? I'm like, yeah. I, I don't need money anymore. Like that's the crazy thing. You go from needing money and not knowing where it comes from to then you figure it out and then you figure it out at such a high level you don't need the money. You have too anymore. much money. You have too much money. And, you know, that's why we're doing a lot more apartment complexes and stuff like that, too. So if I knew the entry fee and I knew what the hell I could do with the properties, Mm -hmm. I would have been off to the races a lot faster. So I have 26 strategies of what you can do with properties once you get a sub two seller finance, any of these things under contract. There's 26 strategies. Wholesaling them is one of 26. So if I understood those things, I would accelerate a lot faster. So, um... One, knowing the difference between subject to and seller finance. Two, knowing the difference between the sub two and seller finance sellers. Number three, what money is going to you know need to be done to, to bring these things to fruition. And then number four, how to find that money. Is mm-hmm. it a partnership? Is it, I'm going to raise the capital and pay simple interest to somebody? I wish I knew that stuff. I had to figure that out along the way. Right. I, I've done a lot of zero down, 0% interest deals. My best deal ever was a deal... Am I just rattling or people want to hear this? Uh, I'm pretty sure people want to hear it. I mean, we have almost 100 people in here. Okay, great. People want to hear it. Love it. And, but the thing is, I, these are probably 500 of my best friends. They're my, my sub two students. So like, they're, well, these I'm are my sure homies. one or two of these people are my people. So it's fine. Okay, cool. I'm talking to the one person. <laughs> All right. So um, one of the best deals I ever did was a wholesaler came to me. I'll give you guys the address. If anybody wants to pull it up, 1906 South 78th place in Mesa, Arizona. You guys can pull it up on Zillow. And it's a little three-bed, two-bath mobile home in a pie-shaped lot. Wholesaler comes to me, and she says, hey, Pace, I'm talking to the seller. I cold-called her, and she wants $100,000 for this deal. This is a seller finance deal, guys, so when you're writing this down, just remember this. She wants $100,000 for this deal. And I go, okay, well, if it's a cash deal, that means you could probably got to buy it at what? What would you have to buy? A hundred, ARV's 100000 What would I got to buy, buy buy this thing at? Rough 70, 75. As a, as, as a wholesaler or as a cash buyer? Oh, as a cash buyer. As a cash buyer, 75. Maybe I put 10 grand into it, list it for 100. Maybe I could walk away making 10 grand, maybe, right? Right. But 
most of the people talking to these sellers are who? They're cash buyers, they wholesalers. Wholesalers. They're wholesalers. So this seller's getting offers at 40 grand, mm-hmm. 50 grand. And she tells this wholesaler, don't even bother me unless you have an offer at $100,000. Stop bothering me. Yep. So this wholesaler says, do you want to come to this appointment with me? I would love it. By the way, I've got this, this, I record every single appointment ever. Every appointment I, I record. You want to hear the last one from last week? It's so good. Zero down, 0% interest. So good. I'll give it to your audience. I'll give it to, give your it audience. to the audience later. So um, I go to this appointment. I record the whole thing. Her name is, um, it's Dale and Susan Poyer, the name of the sellers. This is a true unicorn deal that happens. They happen all the time. But this is the first time I push the limits on a unicorn deal. Unicorn means I zero down. 0% interest, seller pays the closing costs, and I have a tenant that's already in place and the property cash flows on day one. Okay, we probably have a good 20 of these in our portfolio. So I go to Susan and I go, hey, Susan, I would be willing to give you, this is the pitch. Okay, so people are like, well, how do I bring up terms? How do I bring up creative finance to the seller? You ask the seller, this is one of the advantages I have over all you knucklehead cash buyers, all you knucklehead wholesalers out there. I'm a wholesaler too, but I that's one tool in my tool belt. So I go, so what kind of offers are you getting, Susan? She's like, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I don't want to tell you that. I go, well, I imagine they're really low. Are you getting offers at 40, 50,000? You see what I did there? I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't go, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I go, well, I imagine they're probably lowballing you. And I'm starting to inch my way towards being on her side with a common enemy, which is the wholesaler. Yep. Because if you're a wholesaler, I will scorch Mother Earth all over you, all over you. So what happens is she goes, yeah. Yeah, I'm about, I'm getting offers at 50, 60,000. I go, okay, great. So if somebody was willing to give you that $100,000, which you know, that's what Zillow told you, would you be willing to give them terms? And I shut up. Mm-hmm. 99% of sellers have no idea what the word terms mean. In fact, some people on this podcast right now don't even know what terms means. Right. So she says, well, uh, I mean, okay, interesting, but what are terms? And then what story do I tell anybody that asks me what are terms? It's either the truck or the tree. The tr- oh, the tree is good. I haven't told the tree story in a, a bit, dog. That's yeah. a good story. So I told her the F-150 story. Mm-hmm. I recorded the whole call. I recorded this whole meeting on my phone. Phone was on the countertop. And she goes, oh, my gosh. Yes. How do we do this? I go, well, you know, if I'm paying 100 grand, which is full value of this, and there's no real estate agent, then I need, and I'm giving you all of those things, then I need to get something in return. This is a win-win situation. By the way, creative finance is the only way to truly have a win-win with the seller and the buyer. It's the only way. Because on a cash transaction, I got to buy your shit at 50 cents on the dollar, Mm -hmm. which we do frequently. Right. The only thing the seller gets in that situation is convenience of time. That's really it. And it's good. But creative finance is like 10 times stronger in the benefits. So I go, if I'm going to give you all of this, then I got to get something in return. I got to have something in return. She's like, okay, well, what do you want? And I go, well, I would want to do no down payment. And she goes, okay. And I go, and I also want you to know that if I'm giving you a hundred grand, that means anybody else has been willing to give you 60, I'm paying you 40 grand more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. So what I would want is I would want you to know that that's my interest that I'm building into the purchase. You're like, okay. And I go, so I'm going to pay you $40,000 in interest is the way I pitched this. Yeah. And she goes, okay, I like that. All right. But here's the thing is that means you're going to get 0% interest. 
Okay, great. And you pay the closing costs. I go, no, I gave you a hundred thousand dollars, Susan. We're closing in three days. Like the, you got to give something to the table. So she pays closing costs. Mm $2,000. She goes, but who's going to evict the tenant? I go, nobody. I'm keeping those tenants in place. He goes, okay, they're my family members. And they're, you know, they're late almost every month. I go, the reason they're late every month, Susan, is because they are your family members. Wait until I manage these people and we'll be Mm -hmm. fine. So what happens is we close, she, she comes to me and she goes, I want $10,000 down. If you want 0% interest, I pay the closing costs, all of these things. And you want 20 year, you know, because a 0% seller finance deal typically doesn't go 30 years, it goes 20 years. Yep. So she says, I'll do all of this, but I want 10 grand down. I go, no problem. I'll give you 10 grand down, but I'll, I got, I want to give you the 10 grand over the next year. She goes, okay. So this property, you guys can pull up my note. It's on public record. My payment to the seller is $375 a month, principal only. My taxes and insurance and all my other stuff is about $225. So I'm all into this thing, $600 a month. And the rent on this thing is $1,650 a month. So I got $1,000 a month net cash flow on day one. Right. And I got to pay her ten grand over the next year in a down payment. How much money am I going to have to pay this lady? I'm going to have twelve grand in it's net her cash money. flow. It's her money. Yeah. This That's is a like unicorn a... deal. No down payment. Down payment can be paid over the course of a year. Nobody knows you can even create, you can structure things this way. Structures, I'm buying a three, three and a half million dollar apartment complex the same way right now. 43 units in, in Texas. I'm the seller's like, yeah, I'll seller finance your down payment. I'll seller finance the whole thing, 4%, 43 mm-hmm. units. Cash flow is like $11,000 a month net, net after everything. You can start, you can pay the seller on payments and you can seller finance their down payments. Gangster. Right. So I look at that deal and obviously I'd been doing deals at that point for a couple of years and I was just testing the bounds of what I could do. You can do anything in creative finance, anything. Someone's here is asking about the tree story. So you had to go back to our last episode, right? This is oh, Pace's yeah. fourth time. So the third time he was here, we talked about the, the tree story. Second, second time, probably. Uh, one of these times. <laughs> one of these times. Anyway. Just go back and watch all my videos. Anyway, go ahead. So I have a, I have a seller uh, a couple years ago. Um, this was uh, one of my acquisition guys was having a really hard time overcoming a seller. So the only time I go to appointments now is that um, a seller can't get over taxes or there needs to be a cr- more creative structure than my acquisition guys can do. So my acquisition guy goes, dude, this guy just can't get over this subject to seller finance situation. He knows that you're going to pay more money and it makes more sense for him, but he doesn't quite understand you know, taking the money now versus taking more money over a longer period of time. I go, okay, right. no problem. So I meet with the guy, same thing, record the, record the thing in the, in the, I'll give this in the show notes. Maybe you guys can give this Dropbox away or like on a Dropbox link or something. I go, so think about it this way. You, his name, the seller's name is Tim. I go, Tim, you bought this house. It's appreciated in value. It's actually made cash flow for you because you had tenants in here for a long time. So essentially, it's like planting a seed of an orange tree, and this thing sprouts up and starts producing fruit. You're super happy with it. You've got pride in it. And he's like, yeah, actually, yeah, this is kind of like my own little like fruit tree. I go, cool. So every cash buyer that's coming along here is coming to you and saying, hey, that really valuable orange tree that you've spent a lot of time, used your credit to buy it, dealt with tenants and their headaches. All this blood, sweat, and tears that took for you to water, irrigate, trim, prune this tree. That wholesaler is coming to you and basically saying, 
How about I do this? I'm going to cut the tree down. I'll take the branches and the, and the, the oranges and all the seeds that come with it. And you, I'll just chop down the trunk of the tree, give you the firewood wood so you can just go burn it. And yeah. he was like, damn. And I go, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get rid of this producing tree. Whereas with me, I go to you and I go, why don't we just keep the tree in place? Mm-hmm. Let it keep producing fruit. But instead of you having to manage the tree, let me manage the tree. And I'll give you a portion of the fruit of this tree for the rest of your life or for the next 30 years. He's like, oh my gosh. You're right. Why would I ever sell a property for 50, 60 cents on the dollar? I go, probably because somebody told you your house is a piece of shit and they need to renovate it and they got to make money too. And all the lines that I say to other sellers that it actually makes sense for me to say that to those Mm -hmm. specific, specific sellers. But for you, Tim, you're in no pain. So really you should be focusing on what's your greatest gain. So I ended up buying that deal because of the orange tree story. He's like, I don't want to chop down my tree. I want to keep He's like, you can keep 90% of all the fruit. So the way I structured that deal is I turned that into an Airbnb and I let him have the, I I make a payment to him for the seller finance, but on my Airbnb, I also give him 7% of my net on top of his payment. You're actually giving him the fruits. I'm giving him the fruits. So you were talking about preferred exit strategies, right? So I know there was one, we were were talking a while back about this. There was one that you loved more than any other. I loved lease options at a point. Yeah. Okay. So you no longer love lease options. I won't the most. touch a lease option anymore. All right. So what do you type a deal? Uh-huh. What is your go-to exit strategy today? Well, let's let's talk about like top five exit strategies that most people are doing in creative finance. Okay. So sure. I lock up a deal, seller finance subject to novation agreement, Morby method, whatever it is, whatever the deal is. I lock that deal up. I'm going number one, wholesale. If I'm brand mm-hmm. new, go wholesale your first five creative finance deals. Just go wholesale them. Find a buyer like me, find the sub two community. Wholesale a deal to them. That's number one. Number two, when you're brand new and you want to start getting cash flow, you take that that deal and you wrap it to an end buyer. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? That means I'm going to take over the payments at, let's say, $1,000 a month, and I'm going to go find a buyer that's willing to pay me $1,400 a month. So I make the spread of $400 a month. And the great thing is if I wrap it, that person becomes the buyer and the owner of the property. And all I do is receive a $400 payment, $1,000 payment, whatever it is that you structure. I have no issue. I don't have to pay the taxes. I don't have Mm -hmm. to deal with tenants. I don't have to deal with toilets. I don't have to deal with any of that trash, right? Right. And so that's number two. Number three, and the the downfall to selling a house on a wrap, guess what you don't have? You don't have ownership of that property. Right. But you do have cash flow. And so that's a great preferred method for newer people, or I also say lazy people, people that are doing raps, you're either brand new or you're lazy as shit. <laughs> okay. Because true wealth is not built by selling by just getting cash flow. Mm-hmm. Okay. True wealth is by having your tenants crowdsource your retirement and your tenants are paying down the mortgage. They're paying down, um, all the, in the interest and all that stuff. So number three was lease options for a while. That was my next phase was lease options. Because lease options, what we found is that I'd buy a sub two deal or a seller finance deal, and I would turn around and sell it on a lease option. And a lease option for anybody, I could do a whole episode on lease options, is both a lease and an option. So it means they're going to lease the property from me for about five years is what we would give the buyer. And they had five years to execute the option, which is two different contracts. Mm -hmm. The problem is when the market appreciated like crazy, all of my 
all of my lease option buyers executed their options and I no longer own those houses anymore. Right. So I then, you then convert to exit strategy number four, which is holding the property indefinitely. Mm -hmm. And then what you end up doing is you divest and you go, okay, am I going to do Airbnb short, uh, Airbnb long-term rental? Am I going to do corporate rental? You know, section eight. Now you've got a whole bunch of different exit strategies. But for me, I would say that 90% of what we do with creative finance now is hold it and put it in our portfolio. And the reason for that is because I get cash flow, mm-hmm. I get appreciation, I get depreciations. So I, I, I made a lot of money last year, made a lot of money the year before. I paid $0 in taxes and I actually got a, a tax refund of $2,300. Right. A tax refund after paying zero income tax, I paid, I got a $2,300 tax return. Why is that? It's because of the tax benefits of actually owning property. And so meanwhile, all my friends are making millions of dollars flipping and wholesaling and, you know, other things, owning title companies, and they're paying 40% of their money to the IRS. Meanwhile, I'm just buying more properties, right? Yeah. So holding properties is my main objective. And in the last year, I've really spent a lot more time in multifamily creative finance. Um, so holding, holding properties is my, my main exit strategy. So, um, one of the reasons why you like lease option was the the fact that you the the tenant was eventually going to buy it and they cared more and you had to do a few repairs. So now, yep. And I, what I loved about lease options is we would average about a seventy five hundred dollar lease option fee up front. So I'm like, mm-hmm. damn, I got paid up front from a, somebody leasing my property that was just a non refundable seventy five hundred dollar fee. And then the other reason why I loved lease options before the pandemic happened is that 80%, maybe even 90% of my lease option tenants never actually executed my option. And so I would have an inflated rent, I'd get $7,500 up front, and then at at the end of my five years, they wouldn't renew, or I'm sorry, they wouldn't wouldn't execute the option. So I would evict them, not evict them, but I'd say, hey, we're not renewing the lease, and then we would just turn into a long-term rental. So I got 7,500 bucks up up front and a higher rate of of, uh, rental. Because yeah. on a lease option, I'm not renting a property at the same price. I would I would rent something just a traditional rental. All right. So um, I think I got a lot of the questions I wanted answered. So we're going to transition to the did, questions. Did we really? Because I freaking no. I could go along. My questions. There are a long list of other questions. I'm oh, I love it. Okay. My questions. So before we do that, um, I want to just announce our upcoming uh, this Disruptors event. So our live event. Uh, we teach disruptor sales process to overcome seller objections, building real rapport, and purchasing properties. At deeper discounts. If you want to level up your business, sign up today, disruptors.com slash sales disruptors. And um, you're going to be a little bit quiet for this part while they roll this. Mm-hmm. And then we'll go to those other questions. 